Deep dive into the world of science with Nature Plus. From the vastness of the distant star systems to the intricacies of infectious diseases due to climate change, we've got you covered. Enjoy access to over 55 cutting-edge journals, breaking scientific news, and over a 1,000 new articles every month. Whether you're a seasoned researcher or just curious, Nature Plus simplifies complex studies. Plus, it's all available right at your fingertips on nature.com. Nature Plus, the key to unlocking the world's most significant scientific advances. Subscribe today at go.nature.com slash plus. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This week, how the discovery of bacteria in tumours could lead to anti-cancer weapons. If you talk to most surgeons, uh, they will say that tumours are sterile. And the nature versus nurture debate surrounding musical harmony. If we really want to understand music, we need to pay attention to other cultures uh, because in many cases they may hear the world very differently than we do. Plus the potential and the pitfalls of tech in health. This is the Nature Podcast for July the 21st, 2016. I'm Charlotte Stoddart. And I'm Adam Levy. First up this week, Noah Baker goes in search of the science of what sounds good. This is the Tristan Chord. It comes from Wagner's 18th century opera Tristan und Isolde, and at the time, it caused an uproar. The qualities of this chord are really quite peculiar. That's Martin Stokes, head of music at King's College London. But it's dissonance all the way down. In Wagner's day, this dissonant or clashing chord would conventionally have resolved, progressing to another altogether less clashy chord, which in musical terms is called consonant. Now you could and do something... <laughs> which makes a bizarre kind of quote-unquote sense, but it would make for one of the shortest operas ever. What made the Tristan chord so controversial is that it doesn't resolve. Instead, it moves to another clashy dissonance. And another. And another. Audiences cringed in discomfort as that moment of repose, the harmony they were longing for, continued not to come. The experience of, of, of Tristan listened to tonally is one of, of never-ending uh, dissonance, of, of constant uh, irresolution, non-resolution. The music reflects the tragic, adulterous love of the main protagonists of the opera, Tristan und Isolde, doomed to never be together. It's a powerful story, but musically, why is that so? Why, at least to Westerners, does this dissonance feel uncomfortable and long for the relative comfort of consonance? People have speculated for a long time about whether there's a biological basis for this or whether it's a cultural invention. That's Josh McDermott from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. The biological basis story has been 
particularly popular, I think, among scientists, um, whereas many people in the humanities, composers, ethnomusicologists, and so forth, uh, have, have often assumed that it's a cultural invention. As you may expect, Martin Stokes sits firmly on the side of the humanities. It feels hardwired and it feels natural, but of course it's something that's just been taught to you. I think the reason that it's gone unresolved for as long as it has is that it is in part because there's been very little experimental data from people from other cultures that don't have massive amounts of exposure from Western music. Josh wanted to do precisely that study, and his search led him to an isolated indigenous society called the Chimane, who live in the Bolivian Amazon. To reach them, you take a plane to La Paz, which is the capital of Bolivia, up, up in the Andes, and then you take a small plane down to the base of the Andes, and then you take a truck and you drive along these, these dirt roads um, deep into the, the rainforest. And the Chimane, then, they live in these villages that are scattered around a, a tributary of, of, the, of the Amazon. And some of the villages you can reach in a day trip. Others of them require traveling via canoe for a couple days upriver. And so they're really pretty isolated. The Chimane have their own musical traditions. This is a Chimane man playing a small flute. But their music seems to be a bit different from many other musical traditions around the world. For one thing, they don't appear to use chords. Their music is primarily monophonic, at least as far as we've been able to determine. Uh, but it rendered them a very interesting population with respect to the question of the preference for consonants over dissonance because it really suggests that they hadn't had much prior exposure to either consonants or dissonance. We went down there with laptops and, and headphones. They played the Chimane a series of sounds. Consonant dissonant sound, sounds of a bunch of different types. So we had isolated chords, either composed of pairs of notes, which are called intervals, or triads that have three notes. Um, and in addition, we generated vocal harmony using the Chimane's own singing. So we would record Chimane singers, and then we would pitch shift one of the phrases and add it back to one of the other ones, and we could then generate harmonies with different pitch intervals between them. The Chimane were asked to rate whether they liked or disliked the sounds that they heard. When we presented them with consonant and dissonant chords, they rated them as equally pleasant. In itself, that was a striking result. But there was more. Josh did the same test with four other groups of people each with varying exposure to Western music in their daily lives. What was particularly striking is that when we looked across the five groups that we tested, we saw this very clear gradation of the preference. So when you look in musicians from the United States, you find a very pronounced preference for consonants over dissonance. The preference is a little bit attenuated when you test American non-musicians. When you go to the Bolivian capital city and, and the small rural town that we tested, you find that it's, the preference is substantially smaller than it is in people in the United States, but it's nonetheless statistically significant. And in the Chimane, it's just undetectable. And so that, that makes it fairly unlikely, we think, that the preference is due to just something that we're born with. And instead, it seems to really depend on what you're exposed to over, the, your, over your lifetime. One question here is how exactly does this preference relate to the emotional significance that music often carries? Josh did run various controls to get a sense of how much the Chimane understood the tasks and what they meant when they rated the sounds as pleasant or unpleasant. We played them recordings of people either laughing or gasping in fear. These are relatively universal human expressions of emotion. And indeed, we found that they responded 
much as Westerners do. They rate the laughter as pleasant and the gasps as unpleasant. It's easy to wonder whether the tragic love story in Wagner's Tristan, which caused such controversy all those years ago, would have just been lost if the audience was Chimane. My guess is that because the Chimane just don't seem to have strong preferences one way or the other for consonance or dissonance, that they'd be mostly indifferent. Either way, Josh feels that his study sends a strong message to hard scientists when it comes to better understanding music. If we really want to understand music, we need to pay attention to other cultures. We need to to look closely at their music, and we actually need to go to other places and test people in other cultures, uh, because in many cases they may hear the world very differently than we do. That was Josh McDermott speaking with Noah Baker. Before him, you heard from Martin Stokes. The package featured the opening notes of Tristan und Isolde, performed by the Fulda Symphonic Orchestra in 2004. If that's music to your ears, to read more about the Chimani, consonants and dissonance, head over to nature.com forward slash news, where there's a news story and an editorial to keep you occupied. Coming up in the research highlights, bees have a sweet tooth and studying the signature of the first atomic bomb. Before that, Adam's been taking a look at the tech industry's involvement in health and why we need to watch what happens to our data. Anna Collister Slip is a self-professed data nerd. She's also a type 1 diabetic. I've had type 1 diabetes for a um, little more than 30 years and it's a very complex Um, type 1 diabetes. So to help manage and measure all of that, I use an array of digital devices. All those digital devices capture data from Anna's body to help monitor her condition. The data is also useful for studying how things are progressing over time. At least it would be if Anna could get hold of it. Uh, One day I was trying to get access to all of my data so that I could go to my endocrinologist. It was a particularly difficult time for my diabetes, and I wanted to get his insights. But after about seven hours of attempting to get access to just the data streams and not being able to get access, I realized that from a technological perspective, the issues that I was experiencing were very easy to solve. It was an issue of whether or not the manufacturers wanted to make it solvable. It sounds like a technical issue, but the reality is me not being able to get access to these data has real-world implications. Getting access to these data streams, being able to predict and connect these patterns truly could be the difference between losing my vision or keeping it. There could be a number of reasons why manufacturers aren't making data like this available, ranging from poor planning to maintaining a monopoly over the information. But as tech giants, including Google and Apple, get increasingly involved in health, many are arguing that we need to be more aware of what they're doing with our data. John Wilbanks has co-authored a comment piece on the potential and potential pitfalls of tech and health. I called him up to find out what we had to gain from more gadgets in our healthcare in the first place. You know, I, I, I think that healthcare right now is is very much a refined version of a very old practice. It's been really hard to get detailed enough data about individuals to make more accurate predictions about individuals. Um, and that's, in many ways, the big promise of, of technology coming in is, is the chance to gather enough 
you know, longitudinal detailed data about individuals, that could be really useful. It would be great if you didn't take a drug that wasn't going to work for you. There are so many different things that could come from being able to make better predictions. Well, to make predictions like this, tech companies are increasingly using things like machine learning. But in the comment piece, you seem fairly cautious about that. You see again and again that these these sort of machine learning and black box cultures don't always make things more fair. Sometimes they, they, they actually detect the structures of unfairness and then entrench them. And so you, you see things like the lack of diversity on development teams or in training sets leading to uh, automatic photo tagging software, um, tagging people uh, of non-white uh, descendant as uh, blinking or as gorillas. Could you give an example of what that might look like in the context of medicine and health? You could imagine a large technology company with a significant machine learning base jumping into the insurance industry. Uh, I live in a relatively um, nice neighborhood in, in my city. You could imagine that if the algorithms detected me gaining weight uh, through my connected scale, that you might offer me a Fitbit in return for lower insurance rates. Um, you could also imagine the same algorithms um, noticing that those kinds of interventions don't work in neighborhoods that are more economically disadvantaged and offering them both a coupon for a diabetes drug and a coupon for McDonald's because those are likely to be adopted or used. And those are not necessarily equal or just um, outcomes that we might want to choose as society. Those are, in many ways, reflections of underlying patterns that that, that are connected to health, but also connected to long-term economic, political, and, and other kinds of social problems. So, so it's that kind of segmentation that I think is, is really what is likely to happen if we don't talk about the politics here. And I think that has long-term um, health impacts for, for society, for populations. Is it something that you think is going to become a problem in the next few years, few decades? I, I think it's a, I think it's a right now thing. Sort of the contours of digital health are getting set right now. And in a few years, when when it's a more mainstream thing, the contours of the debate will more or less be set. So, so what are the solutions to to the concerns that we might have about this? Is is it just to legislate carefully so tech companies can't do certain things? So uh, the option that, that, that I work on and, and quite a few people work on is the concept that we can actually regulate some of these players um, by, by actually competing through open source models. And there's, there's some history and justification for uh, the open source movements being effective regulators against entrenched industries. In the internet, uh, the web browser space, you have um, first Netscape becoming Mozilla and Firefox, uh, which served as a very important competitor and regulator in its own way against Internet Explorer, Safari, Chrome. So there are, there are enough examples that we, we think that there's a chance here. That was John Wilbanks. But some people are already starting to open up the data their devices are generating. For example, a group of diabetics, frustrated by the restrictions on these medical devices, have started the hashtag, we are not waiting. Here's Anna again. And it's truly a, um, a, a community-driven effort around hacking into our devices, getting access to the data streams and being able to use it. And I think that this is truly the way of the future. That was Anna McCollister-Slip, who's at the Scripps Translational Science Institute in California. You also heard from John Wilbanks, who's based at Sage Bio Networks in Seattle. Check out his comment piece over at nature.com forward slash news. Still to come in the news chat, controversy around the South China Sea and investigating the spread of HIV in South Africa. But now it's time for the research highlights read this week by Corrie Locke. <laughs> 
Bees have a sweet tooth when it comes to the pollen they collect. Researchers have found that bumblebees prefer sweet pollen rather than the bitter or unflavored kind. The team presented bees with artificial flowers containing pollen of different flavors and found that the insects spent more time collecting the sweet pollen. They also kept visiting flowers that were the same color as the one that first provided them with the sweet treat. The researchers conclude that plants that rely on bees for pollination may have evolved pollen just sweet enough to keep bees coming back for more. The study was in the journal Biology Letters. The world's first atomic bomb was detonated in a New Mexico desert in 1945. Since then, scientists have debated just how big and efficient that blast really was. Now researchers have turned to nuclear forensics to find some answers. They analyzed debris from the plutonium bomb. They measured the levels and the isotope ratios of molybdenum, which is a stable product of the radioactive decay of elements that trace back to the original nuclear test. This allowed the researchers to calculate a yield for the detonation. This approach could be useful in ongoing nuclear non-proliferation efforts. You can find the paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. In the fight against cancer, people have tried pretty much everything, including recruiting an old enemy, bacteria. One idea is to inject bacteria into a tumour as a kind of Trojan horse carrying drugs or antibodies to fight the cancer. But the discovery that a lot of tumours seem to naturally have bacteria living inside them has led to a new approach. Sharmini Bundel got on the phone with Jeff Hasty in California to find out more. Um, the fact that we find bacteria in tumours is uh, very new. In fact, if you talk to most surgeons, uh, they will say that tumours are sterile. People don't know how they're getting there exactly. It's thought that when the tumor is creating vasculature, initially it's leaky, and because it's leaky, the bacteria can enter through the blood. So in some previous work, you found that feeding mice bacteria, probiotic bacteria, those bacteria end up in liver tumor cells. Um, so how did you think that could be actually a helpful thing? Uh, the fact that we, the bacteria reside there enables an enormous toolbox from synthetic biology. We can leverage 10, 15 years of work in learning to engineer gene circuits to program these bacteria to do various things once in the tumor. And, and so what was, your, what was your plan? What did you make the bacteria do? Right, so you can think of it as a two-step process. We first modify the bacteria to make an anti-tumor drug then we program them to commit suicide when they deliver the drug. It gets more complicated than that, but it's basically a kamikaze mission of sorts. So you could get GM bacteria that are making an anti-tumor drug. You feed it to an animal and it ends up in the tumor cells. That sounds brilliant. But why did you want to make them commit suicide as well? Uh, two reasons. So one is we wanted to keep the bacterial population low. So you're always worried about safety. And uh, if we can maintain a low population level of bacteria, then it makes them safer. Uh, secondly, um, the kamikaze part of the circuit allows for the release of any drug um, that the bacteria can produce at the site of the tumor. 
if you didn't use lysis or the kamikaze uh, approach, you would have to engineer a secretion mechanism for the drug, meaning you would need to do a lot of work to get the drug out of the bacteria. So getting the bacteria to lyse, that, that is the cells explode, that was important. But you, you didn't want them just lysing at random. You wanted them all exploding at once. How does that work? Bacteria have native machinery called quorum sensing, which allows them to respond to stress in unison. We use this machinery to program the bacteria to grow and then lyse at a threshold level and then repeat over and over in this cyclical manner. So you get large pulses of the drug every time the entire population uh, lyses at the same time. And it's known that large pulses of a drug would work better than trickling it out. Well, it sounds great in theory. So you wanted to test out on uh, mice with liver tumors. What did you find? The first interesting thing we found was that the bacterial therapy by itself didn't perform any better than standard chemotherapy. Tumor growth is roughly the same. So it didn't necessarily work any better than chemotherapy, so that's pretty disappointing. It was indeed disappointing. However, um, we weren't completely surprised. It's previously been proposed that bacteria inhabit this necrotic, hypoxic region of the tumor where they grow and divide and they're safe from the immune system. They may not inhabit the outer rim or the outer regions of the tumor. What's interesting is that chemotherapy works on the outside of the tumor, but not on the inside. The chemistry that's required for chemotherapy uh, needs oxygen. And so inside a tumor, there's a lack of oxygen and the chemotherapy doesn't work as well. So you have the bacteria that work, or presumably may work well inside the tumor, and you have chemotherapy that works well outside the tumor. So when we combined them, then it became more exciting, I would say. That sounds promising. So you had your mouse with the liver cancer. You gave it chemo and your new bacterial treatment. Were the results good? Uh, yeah, they were promising in terms of uh, further exploration. So we were able to decrease tumor sizes for around 20 days. At that point, the tumor begins to grow again. However, when you look at life expectancy in terms of a a mouse, um, it significantly increases the life expectancy. So some way to go yet with this research, but it's great to be able to use bacteria and all the things that we can do with bacteria as a medical treatment, as long as they're the friendly bacteria, but your GM ones are pretty friendly. We're trying to make them friendly, friendly in the sense that they help us. That was Jeff Hasty of University of California, San Diego, talking to Sharmini Bundell about his paper, which is out in Nature this week. Time now for the weekly news chat and David Siranowski, Asia-Pacific correspondent, joins us in the studio. Hi, David. Hello, it's good to be here. There's been a decision recently on China's activity in the South China Sea. Now, firstly, what's the decision that's been made and what does it pertain to? Last week, an international tribunal in The Hague judged that China has been violating some international conventions in its appropriation of or its attempt to appropriate all of the South China Sea. It basically wants to say that this whole entire region is part of China. And it's been pushing this for a long time. Um, even in publications in Nature and, and other journals, it's been forcing its researchers, asking its researchers to 
to put this nine dash line map in with its papers, even if their papers on completely unrelated things. It's trying to convince everybody that this is the truth. Um, it came to a head with the Philippines when they started to push Philippine fishermen off some of the islands that the Philippines think are theirs. So the Philippines brought this um, matter to the, the court and the court sided with the Philippines and basically said China has no right to be there. And um, that's where we got to last week. What's actually at stake? There's a lot of resources there. It's it's also it's a it's a huge trading route. So there are estimates that half of the world's trading ships pass through this area. Um, there's a lot of fisheries, very important fisheries there, and it's also a place where people are going to be looking under the seafloor for uh, for petrol, basically. If China do end up ignoring this uh, this ruling, is there anything that can be done to to get them in check? Probably not. The UN doesn't have a police force. It's going to send out in Navy boats to stop China. Um, so there's no real way. But some people do hope that this will push China to do something basically that saves face for them at the same time that it makes it a fair place. You know, one one proposal that's out there is to create, to make this whole region into a big marine park that everybody can can go to and no one owns um, and that the you know it protects fisheries like any kind of protected area would be. This proposal has been out there for a long time. Um, the person who came up with it said, "Well, maybe maybe this would be an out for China, where where they can say, okay, we're in the lead, we're 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 controlling things, but this is what we'd like to do.'" And then other countries would say, "You know, that sounds great to me." How does China justify its claim to this territory in the first place? Basically, it says it's got a historical claim. It says it's been there forever. Um, these have always been. They point to maps from a thousand years ago, and they said this has always been part of China. Um, the counterclaim is that first of all, China hasn't always been there, and that these these things they're not. They're, there's kind of a, a debate over what they are. China wants to call them islands, um, and if they're islands, then whoever controls that island gets this very large economic zone around it. But if they're not, if they're just rocks, which is what the, the tribunal found them to be, China can't lay claim to them. Moving on now, outside your jurisdiction as Asia-Pacific correspondent to South Africa. Now, researchers in South Africa have identified a particular social cycle that's involved in the HIV epidemic. There. What, what is this cycle that they've identified? Basically, they, they've found that... Um, among young women, where, the, where the, they have the highest rate of new infections in South Africa, they found that a lot of these young women are getting this, uh, getting HIV from men who are maybe seven or ten years older than than them, and they were trying to figure out why, you know, how, how this how this transmission is happening, and so that this focused them onto um, certain social behaviors in South Africa. And um, they kind of honed in on one behavior in particular. What what was that? The pattern of behavior is that in, in South Africa, they often have um, older men who will help women in their uh, in their adolescence to get through school. They're helping with, with funding and things like that. And eventually they'll they'll start sleeping with these with these young girls. And that is how the HIV is transmitted to them. And then these girls grow up and they'll transmit it later to men of, of their own age. And then that cycle will repeat itself. And how did researchers identify that this was actually the behavior that, that is creating so many infections in young women in South Africa? They, they looked at the, the genetic sequence of the virus that they found in 
women of different ages and, and matched it with, with men in different social groups. And they, they just pieced together all of these connections for um, how this transmission must have taken place. Does knowing this give us any opportunity to help these groups avoid HIV infection? Is there anything we can do? Yeah, I think the, the researchers who, who are putting out this data are really hopeful that it will be useful in trying to convince these women to change these behavioral patterns. Um, there's also a lot of talk about the increased use of uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis medical treatments you can give before infection to try to keep these women from getting it. And there, there are other findings. In the past, they've, they've given women some uh, microbicides to use to try to avoid getting HIV, and they found that they weren't so effective. But um, recent research has showed that it's because of a bacterium that they have in the, in the vagina that is keeping this microbicide from working. So they're hoping now if they, if they start doing more screening for different bacterium there, then they would be able to uh, increase the efficiency of, of the use of microbicides. David, thank you for joining us. For those of you wondering how we got through a whole news chat without mentioning Brexit, fear not. July's back chat is out later this week and there will be plenty of Brexit chats. And of course, head over to nature.com forward slash news for all our latest coverage. That's all for now. If you're a fan of the show, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us an iTunes review. The more science puns you work in there, the better. I'm Charlotte Stoddart. And I'm Adam Levy. Deep dive into the world of science with Nature Plus. From the vastness of the distant star systems to the intricacies of infectious diseases due to climate change, we've got you covered. Enjoy access to over 55 cutting-edge journals, breaking scientific news, and over a 1,000 new articles every month. Whether you're a seasoned researcher or just curious, Nature Plus simplifies complex studies. Plus, it's all available right at your fingertips on nature.com. Nature Plus. The key to unlocking the world's most significant scientific advances. Subscribe today at go.nature.com slash plus. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.